0: Hi everybody, welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. Merry Christmas, it's Sean Suntres here. Uh, we're going to start a two-part conversation with Marty Pascoe. That's right, he's back. Very happy to have Marty back on the show. And uh, man, we've got a lot of great uh, conversation to give you. We go into a lot of d- different directions. Halfway through the show, uh, let me tell you some of the things we talk about. Uh, the 80s Twilight Zone show that Marty was one of the writers on. Alien Nation, adapting Superman Returns for a comic book. The reboots of uh, Star Trek and uh, the Star Trek original crew films. The Fred Freeberg era of Star Trek the original series. CBS westerns like Wild Wild West and Gunsmoke. Old Time Radio. Alfred Hitchcock's screenwriters. The editing styles of Robert Kaniger and Joe Kubert. And the art of Rich Burkett and Walt Simonson. Just a few of the things that we talk about with Marty. And uh, we get his views on modern comic book storytelling. uh, What he's looking for today. Uh, from artists, and uh, it's just a great conversation. So this is just part one, and it's a long one. It's uh, about two hours, uh, but then uh, we'll give you part two at the end of the Christmas weekend, and then we've got uh, more stuff coming up before the end of the year. But uh, without further ado, let us uh, start this conversation off now on Balloon. Very happy to welcome back, after a long uh, hiatus... He's back. It's uh, Martin Pasco, everybody uh, joining the Word Balloon Podcast, a fan favorite, perfect for the holiday season. I, I feel like Bing Crosby. And hey, look who look who just showed up at the door. It's
1: Marty Pasco. He's going to share some stories it, with us. Ebenezer Scrooge, more like. <laughs> it, it's really good to be back. And uh, nice, good to, to be talking to you again, John.
0: Dude, as you know, I pester you all the time, pesky Pasco, to uh, come back. I can't. Because, I uh, can't
1: believe it's been as long as it has been since we. Yeah. Back.
0: No, it's all right though. No, and we got we got uh, lots to talk about. You've been very busy lately. You you told me as we were preparing to do this talk that uh, you had a, a fun uh, panel that you were part of involving uh, your work on uh, the '80s Twilight Zone oh, show. Yes. Correct?
1: Oh yeah, that was a a, a very well. It's kind of bittersweet actually. Um, you know, some people couldn't couldn't make it uh, for a variety of reasons, um, but it was nice to see the people that uh, that I did. Uh, Rock O'Bannon was there, and my writing partner that I hadn't seen in tw- over 25 years. And we were reunited, and it was very tearful and it was wonderful. And yeah, she had sort of, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, made herself scarce, and we had to track her down. And she was just like so delighted that we, you know, that she was welcome, and it made her feel really good. And I felt really great about that. And, and uh, it was a it was a wonderful evening. Um, What's her name? Oh, I'm sorry, forgive me, Rebecca Parr. But she now Rebecca Parr. Rebecca okay. Parr. But she now writes under the name Rebecca Beck. B E C K. Okay. And uh, she has a uh, a book called Challenger that uh, I believe is available from uh, Amazon and uh for you know digital downloading and so on cool and uh she's doing really really well and it's 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 so nice to see how uh so many of the people who worked on the show um you know have prospered and how their careers have been benefited by it so it was it was kind of nice we, we We ran uh, uh a number of uh, episodes of the show and and then we all met for dinner afterwards, but other than that, there's not really much to say about it um
0: uh <laughs> mm-hmm. Part of the glisten that'll be uh, people on Twitter uh, occasionally chiming in, oh. uh, and I actually I did welcome uh, Word Balloon uh, listeners as uh, as we're speaking.
1: Oh, to, li- to, to, to
0: chime in with questions. So sometimes we might we might refer to those.
1: You're letting them know that this is going on, so they're live tweeting. Is that, is that right? Sort of on?
0: Exactly. But anyway, I do want to talk because all right, Rocco Bannon. That's that's uh, Farscape, uh,
1: Rocco. Correct. The very same. Yes, and before that, Alien Nation. Uh, yes. which he created. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Did he do the film? Uh, the film was his uh, original screenplay. I had no idea. Oh, That's yeah. fantastic. Or I'd forgotten yeah. if we had real, talked about it in the past. Well, real, well we, indirectly, real fast story. Um, during the, uh, the 88 writers' guild strike, uh, DC did the adaptation of Alienation, and Bob Greenberger, who was the editor, called me up and said, uh, would you like to write this? And I said, okay, sure, and we'll send you the script and of course i had been reading and following the development of the series because i mean the the film uh, you know because rock and i were buddies and i had read his original draft and i had read the rewrite that was commissioned by Jack from James Cameron and then Rock's rewrite of Cameron's script. Because okay. the studio wasn't wasn't happy with Cameron, did I? Well that was unprecedented. And that's why I knew about it because, you know, I was so blown away by it to come back to the original writer. But of course Rock was attached to the producer. So anyway, Bob Greenberger sends me this script from Twentieth Century Fox's, you know, the, the licensing department. And I have to call him up and say, Bob, it's the wrong script. He said, what? I said, this is not the shooting script. This is an earlier draft. And Bob was like, well, I'm, I'm really glad you're doing this. I said, well, don't worry about it. And Rock, God bless him, pulled some strings so that I got a script that Fox didn't want to release to do the adaptation in time for the book to come out to actually match the film. <laughs> That's so weird that Fox wouldn't want – the adaptation to it's not that, be more faithful. No, no, no. It's not that they didn't want it to. It's just that their process of getting the approvals and getting the approval to release things I was on a completely different track from the sure. time of producing the comics. Well, we used to go through this, I mean, all the time, even at DC Comics, and, uh, to the extent that they even bothered to do film adaptations. And I I don't know, do they? Mm. I mean, was there, was there a Man of Steel comic book adaptation? I don't remember that. Uh, but I don't oh that's a that's an interesting point um, no there was a special well and you wrote a story for one of the I did like didn't no, you I, write a story I, for- I did the adaptation for the, um, the, the uh, Brian, uh, Brian Singer the f- film what was it? Superman Returns oh that's right that's okay one that I- was that long ago yes
0: you know you're right maybe not maybe 2013 I don't think there was a a Man of Steel film adaptation yeah,
1: I had uh, I had to go through hell just to get the studio to give me the tools to do that adaptation. And, and Levitz was, God bless him, just he put his foot down and said, no, 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 you cannot expect the writer to do what you're asking him to do, which was they wanted me to go to a room, a, a, an isolated room, somewhere in, in one of their buildings in New York, and read the script and take notes, I wasn't allowed to have a copy of the script. <laughs> no, this is this is
0: the new norm, and also it reminds me of Citizen Kane How? when ex- uh, when the guy goes back to that, the Thatcher exactly. Library.
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> you are only you're only allowed to read right, pages ex- forty seven through one forty eight. The
1: Walter Thatcher Library. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But no, I do no, hear but, stuff like that. But or you know, but it's patently absurd because you see, in the approval process, they're going to say, "Well, where's the dialogue from the film?" And you know, it's like, "What am I going to do? I'm going to sit there for, for you know, 24 hours, painstakingly copying down dialogue by hand." <laughs> wow. So they fi- they finally said, "No, no, no. He has to have he has to have a copy of the script to work from." And. Uh, I, I almost felt like I was going to have to get you know a security clearance from the, from NSA or something. but do you hang
0: on to the original script like that just as like a you know a memento of the experience and yeah, stuff well, or do you, well, you, well
1: unless my, my my you know backup files have <laughs> completely degraded and ghost or whatever, I've got it digitally somewhere, but
0: yeah I see. okay yeah, I'm envisioning you know like a nice little you know uh, bound a <laughs> shooting script oh, no. or whatever that you might have got.
1: Um, what?
0: And certainly, yeah, shame
1: <sighs> on me. It's the, it's the 21st century. I don't think that happens that much anymore. It got, it, got, it got nuttier. I mean, what I wanted was a word file so that I could just take the shot directions or reformat them into art. You know? Sure. And sure.
0: Who was your artist again, uh, Marty, on that adaptation? Matt Haley, who
1: was wonderful to work with. Okay. Um, But what they did was they gave me this digital file, but it had a watermark on it. Do not copy diagonally across every single page. So I literally did all kinds of digital tricks to get that watermark out of those pages so that I could get the Word file. And I went through numerous iterations of cleanup and so on, but I got what I needed and I was able to do it very quickly. But I mean it's like – you know why make the process difficult? But that—that's the nature of corporations. You know, every department is territorial, and you know they have their marching orders, so that happens. You know,
0: sure. Well, looking back on Superman Returns, <laughs> comparing it to a Man of Steel or other okay. Superman okay. No, films no, that we've yeah. had, yeah, where you know now right. with, with a bit more
1: time, S- what Suckered you me into talking about it. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm just interested. Well, you know, also there's that documentary about the Nicolas Cage film that never happened. Uh, the nine the 90s. Um, Kevin Smith wrote the script and um, oh, god. and I forget who was going to direct uh, somebody big, who was going to direct it again. You know what I'm talking about with Nicolas Cage's Superman. Uh, John Peters was the the producer. Was that who the hell was, was that
1: before or after
0: Kevin Smith? There have
1: been so many of these things.
0: Well, Kevin Smith wrote it, but it's uh, oh god now I'm blanking. But it's uh, you know it's the guy who makes all the movies with Johnny Depp, and it was uh, he did the Planet of the Apes oh, well, well, uh, Tim remake. That's who did the original Tim Mad Burton, man. yes, oh, thank man. you. Yes, of course, it had such a success. Exactly. We all forget as much as we shit on what might have been with that movie. You forget that it's oh yeah, by the way, you might remember that Tim Burton really had a really good Batman movie in nineteen eighty nine that, again, with time may not be as well remembered, but you know, hey man, you gotta you're only as good as your your current era. And to be asked to to, to compare yourself, I think, to uh,
1: future eras are it's tough. It's well, tough, but go on. Problem, That's the my The problems opinion. I had with that film were, were basically that, you know, the studio interference didn't help. We didn't need all that Prince rock music, uh, <laughs> which was like kind of out of place. And it would have been nice if, you know, Jack Nicholson had showed up with his acting hat on. I am not quite sure what he was doing in that movie, but he was just like taking the money and being baked most of the time, I think. Hilarious that's fantastic oh wow
0: no and I and I understand now, you know but but again a lot of people would point to his performance as being one of the things that they liked because it matched that joker kind of well, mania. The question, and, you, you know, know, the
1: question I would ask is how old were they when they saw it you know because I'm fair I'm, enough I'm still reminded of that wonderful line of I I, I can't remember whether it was uh, Jerry bales or I, th- I think it was Don Thompson um, you know, who said that the golden age of comics is 12. <laughs> sure. Whenever you're 12 years old, absolutely. Oh, sure. You know, and, uh, you know, some things just don't age terribly well. But I'm sure we'll probably be saying similar things as our collective tastes change going forward about things like, you know, Batman Begins or, you know, whatever. Uh, well, well well,
0: originally I wanted to know about your Superman Returns thoughts. Oh, uh, so what was, but yeah, no, 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 I'm glad to hear about
1: Batman and you know, we can dismiss Superman Returns very, very easily which is that, you know, why would you engage uh, a director who is so well thought of and so successful and essentially put him in the position where he is replicating the work or extending the work of uh a previous a previous director right Donna uh, yeah. yeah and what's kind of interesting is you know because of the stuff that's going on now that you know you and I have been talking about before we started yes uh, talking for the record uh, Star Trek and Star Wars are both uh extensions and and modernizations of the existing brand but the changes that have been made in it um work in those films in a way that I don't think they worked in in Superman Returns. We were painfully aware of Brandon Ruth doing a Christopher Reeve impression and yet the film I thought was marketed as a kind of a reboot. And yet that that didn't really come across in the finished product whereas people don't have any trouble whatsoever accepting uh, Chris Pine's Captain Kirk or you know Zach yeah, exactly. was you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and it, But there's something about those performances. They're inhabiting our visual perception of the character. Obviously, Pine was, was cast because of his physical resemblance to, Kirk, uh, to Shatner. Sure. But they're not... Well, for example, Pine doesn't deliver his dialogue like Shatner did. <laughs> He's... <laughs> not do it and impression uh,
0: and I, but, and, but Carl Urban did which is interesting you know with you, McCoy you think obviously.
1: so that, with that growl um, oh, oh no
0: absolutely when he's you know uh, I may throw up on you uh, <laughs> you know and just the, the you know this, this alien world full of disease and I mean he he kind of oh yeah no he was clearly channeling DeForest Kelly I, at I least. didn't
1: have a sense of that though I, I was a, I did have a very strong sense of uh, him looking so much um, more like the original actor than than some of the others and uh, and I mean, that was the th- all of them Carl urban in particular though uh my reaction was wow this is really well cast, but you know my basic problem with all of that with, with the star uh, Star Trek stuff is that um, there's such richness to that universe that really inventive writers are being lazy if they take. Oh, say an entire two-hour film, or however much the running time was, to establish that the events of the film are taking place in an alternate world, an alternate universe. Right. I mean, presumably you could have established that and set up your new franchise in Act One, and then you have two more acts to play out a new menace. And you know, if if, if it's Klingons or Klingons and Romulans in the first picture, that's fine. But I, I, kind of wanted them to start exploring that universe and, oh yeah, and moving beyond like what we got in the second film, which was basically a, re- a recycling or an extension of a specific episode.
0: Absolutely. Well, and also just that thing of, like you said, okay, we did all this in the first movie. Let's go. Yes. Move, get to another place, get to another story. Good Christ. You're still like stuck in first gear. And, and we've already had a, a good two, a two hour plus movie, like getting to this point. I, no, I, you know, I, and that's why when it came out, I was pestering Marty for the listeners point of view. I, like, like, I want to know what you think of star Trek into darkness because, Oh, it just infuriated me. And, uh, and then also just what, and I, and God, I've, I've mentioned it so many times on word balloon, talking to other star Trek people. Um, the, what, what worked in Wrath of Khan was that 20-year feeling of reruns that Shatner and Nimoy were – or I should say Kirk and Spock were on those 20 years with us even though we were watching the same adventures over and over again. Right, right. But but it felt like – they were two war veterans and you got that cliche of Shatner and, and rather Kirk. I'm getting too old for this shit right. and the subtext of Nimoy and, and Spock of no. You can still do this. We can still do this. I believe in you. And don't worry, we're going to get through this again because we've done it a million times, and we know how to do. We know how to fix this shit. Don't worry.
1: And, 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 and it I, was have, great. I have to say, in that film, uh, which I howled a lot at, by the way. I mean, you know, Cork, my old friend. <laughs> I love. I love Mont-o-Ban. I love Madolbot. Revenge is a dish best served cold. <laughs> it is very cold in space, Cork. My friend. <laughs> well, you get yeah. two guys, yeah. that love the, like, have two guys who love you the you get two guys who love the pregnant paws. It's very cold. You know, it's <laughs> yes. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. You know, and it's <laughs> he's got you know they they tell me the pecs are real, but I I still think that's plastic. Uh, and he's I mean, what has he got on his head? It's the wig the Doris Day wore in Ballad of. <laughs> What, what or, a, a, or a Rod Stewart video. You know, oh, yeah yeah. Oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> but there, but but as you say there are some very nice moments in the, the, the whole thing with the, you know the, the glasses the eyeglasses, that Yes. That, that's from that. Isn't it? The second one?
0: Well it starts in the, in the second one that he needs them. Oh. And Bones gives them to him but then in the callback in 4 Oh. That he, he he puts them in the antique store in the past, okay. and Spock says, "Yeah, well, weren't they a the present from McCoy? And they will be again. That's the beauty
1: of this." No, no, no. <laughs> you know, Four like, is the sing- <laughs> is the singing whales in San Francisco, right?
0: That's exactly right. Next- two is Wrath of Khan. Two
1: is two is Montalban chewing up the scenery. The next one is Shatner directing, and it opens with the mountain climbing and everything, right? Yes, the, the number five. Yes, that's, Final that, Frontier. Right, that's the one where he's got uh, Jimmy doing taking pratfalls. Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> Do you not know a jailbreak when you see one? Well, you know, don't let... I mean, Nimoy acquitted himself, but, you know, Jesus, God, don't let the actors direct. You know, (laughs) I mean... I mean, I'm dying to see what this new one, uh, Star Trek Beyond, is going to be like. Because so when I heard that Simon Pegg was writing it, I was like, right. <laughs> I would love to hear what those de- development meetings were like. Simon, baby, booby, we really love the draft. We just have a couple of notes. Like, we think that Captain Scott should get Kirk and Nimoy out of the cryogenic suspension before page 85, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well i think i mean I'm looking know, at i a like friend, simon though. i'm like scotty 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 <laughs> well you know that's you interesting because yeah get a chance to write yourself apart go for it <laughs>
0: well you know he well he was he was fun in in uh into darkness and honestly um he has kind of nerd fan cred because of Shaun of the dead and hot fuzz and a lot of it paul god paul the first uh the first minutes of paul he's at comic-con and he's very much at home simon pegg and his uh and his uh, uh, co-star, and they're very funny there. And um, honestly, it, like, if anything, coming off the guys that screwed up Star Trek Into Darkness, who initially were going to write and direct the third movie as well, they're pulled off, Kurtzman and, and Robert Orsi, and and they put Simon Pegg in the writing uh, chair. And I'll be honest, I know a lot of Trek fans are like, okay, because at least he's a fan, much in the same way that um, I think the majority of fans were like, all right, J.J. Abrams is a fan. And, I mean, you know, Simon's made enough movies. He's written enough movies. And also in the case of Shatner with Five, obviously because of T.J. Hooker. And I think, you know, he probably much like, you know, well, you let Nimoy direct. It's my turn now. Of course. You know, and and so he kind of had built up enough cred where they're like, all right, let him direct. And also, I know that was during a writer's strike and a director's strike. And originally they wanted Sean Connery to be Cybok. And he's like, I don't think so. Uh, and they had to go to Lucy Arnaz's husband, who is a good actor. You know, honestly, I actually, I think Lawrence Luckenbill kind of had like this, you know, thankless job of, all right, you know, I'll do what I can. And actually, I think given the weirdness of the whole story, I think did as credible of a job as you could, given Lawrence, the material.
1: Lawrence Luckenbill, who whom you're referring to, I believe. Yes, sir. <laughs> is one of those actors who's kind of like, in my opinion... Kind of disappears on screen, but on stage, yes. Um, a, a long time ago, he did a thing, one man show, where he was playing Lyndon Johnson, and it played here in L.A. And he did it in a full prosthetic makeup by Rick Baker, on the order wow. on the order of what Bella Lugosi did. I think it was Rick Baker. I could be wrong about that, but anyway, it was a Landau's. Landau's. Uh, Bela Lugosi. Lugosi. Yes, right, exactly. Lynn yeah, Edward. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, no worries, man. And it's it's tough as hell. And, you know, I've, I've done some acting and I've, I've I've dealt with prosthetics. It's tough as hell to act through those things. You know, because you have a limited mobility. Sure. But this was but this was one of those uh, makeups that it, it 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 wasn't a full face. It was it was prosthetics glued on and so on, been mm-hmm. piece by piece, so that it would move, and it was porous, so it would move with the face. Sure. And my. God, what a riveting evening that was! He was a, he was a terrific actor. So anyway, like, we're, but we I, no, but that's just the, this is what we do. This
0: this, I, this but I digress. Exactly, that's the subtitle of the episode. But, this is what we do. Okay,
1: but what what I I saw in the trailer for for Star Trek Beyond is whatever it is that they're trying to sell because it's. <laughs> well no 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 I mean you you can't get a sense of what the story is or what the premise is right they're they're not ready to reveal that yet but what I think they have done with the footage that they have is indicate that you're going to see perhaps some new antagonists unless any of the the creatures or the the alien beings that we see in the trailer are their version of Andorians, but but whatever at least they're dipping into a different part of the well if you know what I'm saying true um so that's kind of encouraging. Um do you know anything about the storyline? I don't.
0: No, no, I, I uh what what turned me off, the director is Justin Lin and he's the guy who kind of uh helped kick uh Fast and Furious back into popularity. Uh and I guess that's why he was chosen. To be honest, Simon Pegg was on the red carpet for the UK premiere of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And a and a reporter said, "What do you think of that first teaser trailer for Star Trek?" And he clearly, I mean, you know, your facial, dis, you know, impre- <laughs> you know, expressions will, you know, betray you what you're really thinking. Right, and right, it right. was clear. He's just like, ah, well, I guess you know they're trying to appeal to a more mass audience. He goes, "What?" He goes, "All I can say is there is a lot more Star Trek in the film than what the teaser
1: revealed." And so uh, him even saying that made me feel a little better. That's that's a very interesting phrase. More Star Trek, because what that does is that raises the question of: Is there only one Star Trek? Is there only one version of Star Trek? Um, l- let's play a little game here. All right? Sure. Uh, this is your t- uh, hey. This is your uh, ride, okay, Marty. I'm, okay, I'm just okay. I'm shotgun. Go okay. ahead. Put aside any self censorship. Let's play a little game here, like. Um, when, it, when a shrink does word association, and you just say it first, sure. it pops a deal. I'm going okay. to throw a name out at you. And if you recognize the name, give me your first associations with it, okay? Shoot. Fred Freiberger.
0: He was a Star Trek uh, producer, uh, came in and really, like, improved the show in its uh, – well, I, yeah. And I would say in its, its second season, wasn't he the second <laughs> season? Or was, it the, or was he the third season guy that gave us the crappy Star Trek?
1: That's, <laughs> That's it. The clou- That's it.
0: Oh, it's third season. Right. So Cloudminders. And- right, right, right. Now, Go on. Uh, there are... Spock's brain.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, we, we'll get there. <laughs> there <laughs> now, there are people, hardcore Star Trek fans, you, when you mention that name, you know, their heads start to spin like Linda Blair and the X's. You know, <laughs> he's the Antichrist. He ruined it. He killed it. It's all... You know, and I bought into that for a long time. Well, because, you know, what, what we used to say was, you know, on the Twilight Zone, People would, we would talk about William Froog, who was the producer of the last season, um, who was you know, from a different planet than the producers that Serling had worked with before. Okay, okay. And, we, and we, would, we would converse about him by saying, you know, William Frug, you know, the Fred Freiberger of Star Trek. Hilarious. And what I've come to understand, though, is that he's been a whipping boy, I think. William Fruger, I'm sorry, Fre- uh, uh, Freiburger. Go on. Um, because, and I do have a point that this is not a complete non sequitur from what we were talking about. The people to blame for Star Trek's failure, creatively as well as you know, uh, rating, ratings-wise, um, are not. Are, it, it is not Fred Freiberger, It's Paramount executives. Um, and NBC executives. Uh, They didn't want the show. They were sort of embarrassed into it by the so-called letter-writing campaign. Right, that Uh, saved the show earlier when it was being threatened to be canceled. Right. And Gene Roddenberry had already decided at that point that, you know, since Star Trek was canceled, he was moving on to other things. So when the surprise renewal came, he elected simply to be – he was the executive producer, but he was not hands-on, I guess. the Right. Uh, uh, okay. Sure. I don't want to say absentee because I'm sure the network would insist that he at least have consulted.
0: But Freiberger was like the showrunner basically to use modern yes, terms.
1: Exactly. And he was brought in for a very specific reason. I mean, him as opposed to someone else. Freiberger was the guy who, in the opinion of the industry, turned the Wild Wild West into a hit Um, love that show the show was meandering Uh, (laughs) forgive the glistens go on the second the second episode aired was actually the ninth episode shot and before they brought in Freiburger they had at least one other producer uh, uh, according to Robert Conrad himself um, on the DVDs uh, They went through several. But what Freiberger did was come in and isolate what uh, the the primary values of the show were, the the unique selling proposition. And none of it was worrying too much about it being a Western. It was, you know, a a sexy girl, beautiful girl for Robert Conrad to get involved with, Um, a a wild invention, something, or an element of disguise for, for Artemis Gordon, a bizarre villain, and at least... One very weird set piece, and then when they started writing to that, the show was essentially defined. And then when Bruce Lansbury came in and succeeded Freiberger, he just in the color stuff he just amped all of that. Um, and that show, most people don't know this, that probably would have gone on as long as six seasons. It was it was set to be renewed for the fifth season, and CBS. Like all the networks were under pressure from the—I I believe it would have would have been the uh, early Nixon, Nixon, the early—that's right, early Nixon yep. administration. That's right. Go on. Or the end of the Johnson administration to reduce violence on television. It was
0: 1970, so it was the Nixon oh, was, administration, it unless it started it with Johnson. It I took did, two years. I,
1: yeah, sixty-five. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds right. In any yeah. in any event.
0: Because it was, as you say, it was a huge hit and was still very, very popular. Yeah, so essentially it became a sacrificial lamb. Um, but Because f- it was too violent. It was considered too violent. Exactly. And certainly exactly. it, it amidst the environment of that, you know, 68 to 70 kind of civil
1: unrest that was going on. But the question becomes, why couldn't they have just toned it down? I mean, I have to believe that it was probably a mutual decision. Or, well mutual i mean there was no buyer supplier in that situation it was cbs owned the show right right they they called the shots because michael garrison the guy who produced it his production company was the co-partner um had died mysteriously a year or or, not mysteriously but in a freak accident uh a a year after the show started so you know in in, in any event i'm just i'm blathering here because i've been studying the show because I've, i've gotten into steampunk um that's great uh I'm playing with something. I may never use it, but I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Well, I, nah, hey, man, that's fantastic! Go on. Well, I always loved. I always loved Jules Verne when I was a kid. It wasn't called sure. steampunk then, but that that whole idea of taking uh, the technology of the late uh, 19th century and extrapolating anachronistic inventions out of it just plausibly enough, which I think is the the essence of what steampunk is. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, is fascinating. Uh, yes, not didn't didn't get too excited over what I refer to as the league of very ordinary genre tropes. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but but it, what they were it, able to really it, what they were able to really do, Vern. I mean, like submarines were happening in the nineteenth century, and that's what's great. Was all right. Well, we can already do it underwater. All right. Well, you know, the next frontier is the sky. Well, thank you. And thank, and, thank and and. You. and it, that's exciting, and you're right. I mean, that is the thrill of really getting into the Verne and and that era's kind of science fiction. But Go on, you, please.
1: Thank you for <laughs> thank you for assuming I'm talking about the film <laughs> rather than you know Alan Moore's graphic novel series. Or oh yeah, or, you know, I mean, you know, which was interesting as, as far as it went, um, but I did get kind of the feeling that somewhere early on in the process he went. Well, gee, this is really kind of a one-joke premise, isn't it? I mean, how far can we take this? More? Well,
0: I don't know, actually, because, you know, they keep they keep writing. He and Kevin O'Neill are, are, continue to do amazing comics uh, as they've progressed the story mm-hmm. uh, that have nothing to do with the film. You know, it's too bad because James Robinson wrote the screenplay. And I'm sure it was much like you just said about uh, Star Trek being bullied by network notes and 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 production notes from the the company. I have a feeling that's what happened with Fox and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the film, and also that director. I mean, God, the director drove Connery so nuts he retired from live action uh, film. That was his last movie. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to put up with this. Well, shit.
1: I think I, you know, I think he had health issues too. But uh, oh, really? Okay. Well. Um, well, he announced at one point his retirement. Uh, due to um, a, a, some kind of either a kidney or a liver ailment and, oh, I didn't and, really. and everybody in town thought oh well that means he's saying he's That's going it. to be leaving yeah, yeah. and uh, he's still with us <laughs> last, yeah. I know, yeah. last I saw you know oh yeah so i you know but uh, so I think there may be you know some Truth to what you were saying. He did he did take a producer credit on the film, so you know.
0: But isn't it, isn't it interesting though with Wild Wild West that like that was that was sacrificed, like you said, but yet Mannix was able to continue, Mission Impossible was able to continue, with these shows that had action, you know, that were kind of straight-up fistfight kind of shows and stuff. Maybe not to the degree that Wild Wild West was. Because in contrast Gunsmoke obviously had to tone down its cowboy kind of western <laughs> tones. It really became more of a straight up drama. <laughs> and and you know I don't know man I I I I guess growing up in the house of three channels we still watch Gunsmoke. I find it hard to watch those '70s Gunsmokes. I mean, there really is a different vibe than what we got in the black and whites. And I'm thrilled that Encore and some of these other like vintage TV uh, shows like MeTV are showing those hour-long uh, James Arnaz, uh, Dennis Weaver, uh, Gunsmoke uh, Well,
1: episodes. I, I don't mind admitting I always found Gunsmoke hard. to watch.
0: <laughs> yeah? Oh, I love the radio show, man. I got to be honest. Oh, I they, love the radio I,
1: show. I wasn't talking about the TV show. I mean, I wasn't talking about the radio show. I was talking about the TV. The TV. Well,
0: I get you. I get you, and I, I understand.
1: No, I mean, all, all of that <laughs> stuff that was being done on CBS in the 50s on radio was so much more sophisticated than what was being con- done contemporaneously on television. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Simply because they thought, man, nobody's, nobody's listening. Nobody's watching. Exactly. Nobody's listening. Right. Yes. Right. So you had, I mean, for me, the 50s are really the golden age of radio, uh, not the 40s or the 30s, um, because of the, the, the level of experimentation. Yes. Um, and the Gunsmoke Show, I mean, aside from you know, great performances from guys like William Conrad, you had people like Norm Macdonald, uh, who was one of the um, genius, I think, uh, producers at CBS mm-hmm. Radio. Yep. He was he was the guy who revived suspense in '57 as a show with with stars, even though it was a sustainer, purely on the strength of his reputation, and people like you know Agnes Moorehead would come back. And do not just, you know, the umpteenth version of, sorry, wrong number, <laughs> you know, but she'd play in new material just yep. just because she wanted to work with this guy. And I me, mean, all of those people were, uh, uh, the, le- the level of invention that was in that stuff, you really have to listen to it and seek it out. I can't remember, there was uh, what it's called, the Columbia... the Columbia Radio Workshop. Uh, not in
0: the late fifties. I think it had a different. Oh, the CBS Radio Workshop then. After. Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah. Where they did Brave New World.
1: Yes, yes.
0: In the late fifties. Yeah, that was CBS Radio Workshop. Okay. Yeah. All
1: right. Yeah. Oh, some of and that, that stuff is
0: amazing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Brave New World. It's the most disturbing adaptation of Brave New World. I've yet to see anything on video yes. that can compare. And it really is. I mean, and yeah, like you said, and especially in the nineteen fifties, because no, you know, everyone, television was the it medium. And uh, yeah, there's it's. But you're right. And also, they had that core of excellent character actors that did find work in television and film beyond guys like John Daner. Oh, sure. Who was you know Paladin on radio yep. and the, the,
1: the CBS stock company basically. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, uh, Howard McNair, uh, Conrad, of course, uh, Parley Bear, Will Bouchy, Yeah, all of those people yep. that showed yep. up over and over again in those shows. And to me. Um, i I wonder how many more comparable great things there are that simply haven't survived because nobody you know preserved the transit sure. and do we revere, for example, yours truly Johnny Dollar I as do. much as fans do because of what survived <laughs> Well, but you know you listen to that show, and except for those fifteen minute segments that were done with Bob Bailey, right. It's lethal. I mean it's You know, I don't know, man. I think the
0: a couple of those seasons of Bailey's Post 15 episode five part chapter shows, like the 20 minute ones, some of those work and some of the Mandel Kramers were okay because again, they had that stock company.
1: You really do know OTR, don't you? Oh yeah! Oh, I dude, was, I was. I mean, we never let ourselves talk about it all that much in the past. We, I'd make glancing <laughs> references to it, but I mean, yeah, this is a <laughs> comics podcast, you know?
0: Oh no, but yeah, but you know, first of all, my listeners know that uh, our 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 tastes, and in fact, because this is where I'm assuming as a storyteller. You, listening to this stuff was just as vital to you as whatever you read or whatever movies you saw or TV that you saw in terms of again how are they telling stories well, and there's wonderful writers and actors that made these stories come to life on radio and of course being a broadcast guy I, I'm just a nerd about my business and okay. I love I, I, I love old time
1: well listen we, we meander a lot at these things but remind me to get back to the Star Trek plan because we sort of left that hanging there but I understood okay we, All right. we, you, you brought up something very very interesting Uh now, i've I've been thinking a lot about uh, the best way to find a new a young new artist for a project that I'm working on and I'm looking at a lot of stuff and i'm <laughs> I'm not seeing a lot of the kind of visual storytelling that I was hoping to see in comics now that they are so much more cinematic and i've been I've been I'll bring this back to radio. I've been watching a lot of Hitchcock lately, Okay. and doing you know a little bit of reading about the films. I mean, I'm I'm pretty much a, a huge Hitchcock fan to begin with, but there's always things Me too. there are always things that career is so vast and the body of work uh, material that's been written about it is is so vast that there's always new things that you can be you know finding out. The writer of Hitchcock's uh, four key Paramount films, except, well, there are five, except for Vertigo, was a guy named John Michael Hayes, Okay, uh, and he wrote Rear Window. Hayes had just started as a screenwriter, but the reason that Alma Rebel, Hitchcock's wife and co-producer and story editor, mm-hmm. and Hitchcock were interested in working with him is that they had been... Fans of Radio Mysteries and uh, Hayes was a contributor for us to suspense and then went with William Spear over to Adventures of Sam Spade and had, and had developed quite a reputation as a mystery and suspense writer on radio. Okay, Why would you hire well of course they knew he had the chops to, to write you know for the screen. Why would you hire a radio writer to write a screenplay? I mean, yes, some people have done it. Uh, Mel Dinelli, uh the story editor of Suspense, is a perfect example. Um, he's, he was a s- successful playwright, wrote for film and for television as well as radio. Uh is the guy who did Spiral Staircase, uh, The Window, uh, great film noir stuff. So they hire, okay. they hire John Michael Hayes because they have the sense from the way he wrote that he could create the pictures in the dialogue that was naturalistic and not baldly expositional uh, that other radio writers weren't able to do and you watch Rear Window and, then, and you Hayes has written a book called Working with Hitchcock uh, that talks a lot about his process and he's given a lot of interviews. He was encouraged by Hitchcock not to worry about overwriting. And if you look at the screenplay, they look like, you know, Alan Moore's comic book scripts or like mine for that matter, you know, pages and pages of description before you get to the dialogue. There is an opening shot in uh, the opening sequence in Rear Window is a masterpiece of visual storytelling. If you know, I don't know if you know the sequence.
0: I, I do. Go out and okay. describe it. Very, that. very I'll quickly. Exactly
1: okay. The camera does a, a pan, a sweeping pan of the courtyard that Jimmy Stewart looks out into in the course of the film. And pans then into the window of his apartment where he is asleep in his chair. It pans over his leg, which has a cast on it that said, here lie the broken bones of J.B. Jeffries. So we know, yep. we know his character. We know who he is. We know what his name is. We know what his, his situation is. Yeah, why then, he's in the chair. Right, yep. Then the camera continues to pan, and we see a smashed camera, a photograph from the point of view of a man who's about to be run over by a car.
0: Yeah, like a racing accident, basically, right. or
1: whatever. And then a framed negative of Grace Kelly, and then over to a f- stack of Life magazines or some magazine with that yep. picture on the cover. In that less than, I think, uh, a minute and a half, if, if that long. It, it, it's probably less than 60 seconds. But in the course of that, he's established... All of the characters that the Jimmy Stewart character will be looking at, who he is, what his girlfriend looks like, or or what someone important in his life looks like, and that he's a photographer. All of this stuff is established without a word spoken in the first 60 seconds. And if you look at the screenplay, the final shooting draft, it's all there in the script. It's all described. And this is – this is – you know, I'm meandering all over the place as usual, but my point is, so much of the, vi- the visual storytelling in comics, the the silent sequences that you see, where there's no dialogue, they're simply, in mainstream comics, what I'm seeing, they simply depict action. But that pure filmmaking uh, purpose of using the visuals to establish character to give you exposition without dialogue is often missing. And so, what I would say to younger creatives is, if you're an artist, don't think of the writer as just someone who's putting dialogue on the page, and someone whom you can feed a plot to. Work with the writer. Uh, Some of the the most satisfying collaborations that I've had in comics have been with artists who could execute a three-panel silent sequence. I mean, three-page, three-page silent sequence. Wow, that's a lot of real estate for a three-page.
0: I mean, I agree with you, Marty. But I mean, that's... And it's funny because I know you guys were under an even stricter uh, per-issue limit of page space. But, you know, it's not 22 pages anymore. Now it's 20.
1: Oh, really? And, I was... You know, oh, yeah. Uh, I was, yeah, uh, yeah,
0: now it's... You know, I mean, so that's for DC and Marvel. And well, I where, do think you get... Well, where, you where know, I got so, that from,
1: I got to tell you, where I got that from was, was uh, Kaniger and Kubert. They did that all the time. Uh, uh, they challenged each other, how long can we play this sequence without any dialogue at all? Wow. And when Q, when, when the roles changed and Kubert was editing Kaniger... And I know this because, you know, I was working at DC at that time, too. Sure, I used to, Sure. Uh, I, was, I was just, you know, a kid, an assistant. <laughs> Excuse me. You'd pass Joe's office. I mean, he did most of his editing at home, but occasionally he'd come in, you know. And you'd see him doing almost an impression of what Kaniger was alleged to have done. When Kaniger was back in his days when he was terrorizing talent he was known not just to hand a page back and say this doesn't work he'd draw an x with a grease pencil through the whole page wow well he insisted he insisted that the artist be paid for the changes but the changes were a whole new new board yeah, but to make a guy like,
0: yeah, re- redo the entire page, basically. Ruin the page. Well, because, with the because he felt that every
1: single thing in it didn't work. Wow. So anyway, you would see Hubert, you know, taking this pencil, almost like holding it in his fist, instead of the way he would normally hold a pencil, and just drawing lines through stuff. And he's going, ah, too much shit, too much talk, too much You know, <laughs> Kaniger would have these, like, 40-word 40, 40 balloons. And, you know, Hubert would just scratch all that out and write, you know, hunt, cover you mangy dog faces" or whatever the hell the line was. And it was hilarious to watch this. But that that made an impression on me. And once I got to the point where I was able to maneuver a little bit, you know, I had a little bit of clout or a little bit of credibility. And I didn't have quite as much of a rock to push up a hill where it came to, you know, editorial interface. Okay. <laughs> um, I was always looking for opportunities to do that, and I was I was lucky in that I had one collaborator who was really really good at it, um, and people picked up on his storytelling from that and the, all the other things that he was doing at the time. Rick Burchett, and uh, you know he was a mainstay for a long time. And uh...
0: you guys did Black Hawk together, right. among Black other things. Black. And Rick currently working with uh, Greg Rucca on steampunk yes on uh, Lady Sabre and the uh, yes. Pirates of the Ineffable Ether. yes I am aware of that and I am of course
1: deeply envious of Craig Recca in that collaboration um, but uh, yeah uh, so I don't know like, once again you you know, <laughs> we have meandered so far from whatever the hell we were talking about. <laughs> where, the, where was I our get car to sound like that idiot? Yeah, that idiot that I used to be going, uh, what are we talking about again? They're sitting there with their earbuds and going, You know, the fuck is this old ass?
0: No, and no. I'm- Patrick Zercher, uh, Comic Pro himself, asked uh, which oh. comic artists were you most satisfied with oh. in their work on your scripts? And you've just named one in terms of Rick Burchett, obviously. One.
1: Um, well, can you keep going. Well, you know, it, it it's easier, it's much easier. Uh, to talk, but you don't want to mention their names. <laughs> the ones who suck? <laughs> but, but the ones that, yeah, that, that didn't that did work. Out. But that's, no, but you know, that's my, you know, roundabout way of saying I, I, <laughs> I've i really been very, very lucky. Um, but, you know, the, who's the best is always, you know, always onerous because – you have to pick one you can pick yeah let me try to preface this without going on forever just for, okay. just for a chance just to see if I uh, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock is a great director but if you value something else Howard Hawks is a far greater director why because Hitchcock was great at what he did but he was very limited he tried to do comedy mm, did not work at all you know, although he came close, a little closer, with Trouble with Harry, uh, which is really a black comedy. But the, the earliest, he couldn't do comedy. Hawks could do it all. Uh, action, yeah. adventure, uh, screwball comedy, weepies. The man even directed a musical, for Christ's sake, which John Huston couldn't do when he tried to do Annie. Uh, That's hilarious. Gentlemen prefer blondes, I guess, is what no, you're thinking No, um, no. Well, the one I'm thinking of is uh, Ball of Fire. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's called A Song Is Born. It's the musical remake of Ball of Fire. Of Ball of Fire, yes. Yeah. Okay, so Song of Born was Danny Kaye in uh, Virginia Mayo. Right, right. And uh, Steve Cochran in the uh, Dana Andrews part. Uh, basically, if. A vehicle that Samuel Goldwyn cobbled together right before losing all three of those contracts to Jack Warner in a poker game, which was. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. I didn't. And ba- I don't know what maybe oh. we get into
0: that. But anyway. Well, but Ball of Fire the- is great for jazz fans because Benny Goodman and Louis Armstrong, oh. among others, are right. in the movie. It's terrific.
1: Right. So, yeah, because they just, they just turned it from modern slang to modern music. Yep. But, uh, you know, Hawks himself directed. But anyway, what I'm getting at is. All of these artists all excelled in different things. Um, and the experience of working with them was different. And you learned very early on to play to an artist's strengths. Um, Kurt Swan was so capable. I mean, what that man was capable of doing with uh, a stroke of the pencil here and there to convey emotion. And it was so powerful that not even the worst inking in the world, and believe me on some of my stuff, I got the worst inking in the world, uh, could obscure that. And it, but conversely, it's also the reason why uh, fans of that stuff revere Murphy Anderson because that, sure. s- that very slick rendering captured all of that stuff. Yep. So when I would be asked to do these uh, backups uh, that were essentially you know, little slice-of-life dramas, private life of Clark Kent or whatever – Yes. Um my if, favorite feature. If I knew, and I was, it was, Julie always, Julie Schwartz always wanted to reserve the right to assign something to an artist at the last minute on the basis of who was available. And many of his writers, and I, you know, I wasn't alone in it, would say, Julie, will you tell me who's going to draw this? Tell me who's going to draw this. Because I wouldn't attempt some of the things that I was trying to do if I didn't know that Kurt was going to execute it, because there was nobody else in the business who was better at doing those emotionally packed tug of the tug at the heartstrings moments sure and i got to the point where i was able to play some of that kind of character stuff in superman uh and i was grateful for that because i always knew of course that it would be kurt drawing the uh, the book um walt, walt simonson my god i mean i don't think of that as a Collaboration so much as a learning experience. I mean, you run it with him on Doctor Fate. uh, Well, it was just—it was really just that one issue, and we also worked Uh, on—we also the first issue special, yeah. And we worked on Metal Man together. Uh, Okay,
0: because I wasn't sure if—and we probably covered this before—because Doctor Fate became a backup in Flash, right? And and, I—and um, that was Keith Giffen who drew that. Oh, I wrote that, but Keith Giffen
1: drew that. Okay, okay, Uh, crazy. All right, (laughs) Well, it's well, no, I mean. they, they package them all together in a single trade paperback so with, with new covers well that's true too with new covers yes. by Walt which also <laughs> illustrated stuff that Walt hadn't drawn originally but in any event oh okay Walt, Walt's one of those guys I'm, you know I, I think I've said this before um, the frustration is that he doesn't need a writer <laughs> you know what I mean I understand yeah so I've been dying to work with him again for years and it, it's just not going to happen because you know he doesn't need a writer and that's cool I, I totally get that um And, but but I do remember thinking and saying to him uh, Walt do you want to write because he had such an amazing sense of pacing I mean I I normally like to work full script but with with Walt um, you know uh, uh, not even a broken down but just a a plot synopsis Uh, when I say not broken down I mean not broken down by panel panel by panel but but, but broken down page by page Um, and he would take these things And I would get, you know, uh, not even pencil pages, uh, roughs, because Walt was one of these guys who, you know, did most of the rendering. If he knew he was going to ink it, you know, he didn't bother to type pencil for himself. He didn't have to. And a a lot of guys are like that. Uh, But I would still be able to tell what he was doing and these wonderful marginal notes. And there was a – he taught me how to pace a story properly. That's all I can say. Wow, And I don't think I would have been um, as able to make the transition into screenwriting as quickly as I did had I not learned about pacing and structure what I did uh, from Walt and then apply it to my work and then from there make the transition into screenwriting. Um, But having had that experience, of course, I look at the way this stuff is paced now, and I understand why, you know, the big two stuff. I understand why it's done that way. The the four issue story arcs for the trade paperbacks and the blah 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 blah. Right. But it seems to me that there is still a way to do a four issue story arc that doesn't feel like a twenty page issue uh, stretched out. Do you know what I mean? I do. I um,
0: would you Would you say four connecting stories that kind of build onto a, a bigger theme?
1: Is it, is well, it more that? Well, there or? are a number of ways to do it. I mean, that is one. But the other way to do it um, is just building in enough density of incident into the story so that the reader feels he's getting a bang for the buck, and it sustains the four issues. In other words, instead of thinking as uh, thinking of Thinking of it as a story in three acts stretched out over four issues, which would be 80 pages, or even a story in four acts, think of it as 12 acts, three-act story in, each in the issue. first issue, so that you have some plot lines that at least seem to close off, and it's dramatically satisfying. But then you do, in the next issue, a surprise. There's more to it. There's a twist. It's taking the same storylines, the same plots, and building into them enough character subplots and enough misdirection so that you sustain the reader's interest rather than creating the impression that you're just marking time. And the sense of padding Stuff has maybe the maybe the current audience because they don't have the frame of reference of having written I mean having read comics written differently. uh, Excuse me. Maybe that doesn't bother them, but it drives it drives me crazy. Um, uh, And you go back. I mean, all right. Let's loop back to something we were taught when we got off on on old time radio there for a minute. Sure. One of the reasons that we remember, or many of us who really like Johnny Dollar, you, you you like more of it than I do. <laughs> but What's the five part, uh, the five part exactly, episodes of it, exactly. go on. Those things are masterpieces of structure. I agree. Because what they manage to do in 15 minutes is not only do they advance the story, usually with at least one uh, fake, up, fake out set up, a misdirection set up for payoff in the next episode, but also a new reveal. Right, so yep. it moves the plot forward, and yep. and they manage to squeeze in enough recapitulation so that if you're coming in uh, midway, right, you know what's going on. Yep, and you know that there's at least one one uh, storyline where only four of the five chapters survives, and it's like chapter two that is missing or whatever, and if you listen to it in sequence, you you you. You know, you hear the third episode, and you realize you haven't you haven't really missed anything. But at the same oh, time, but at the same time, if you you know you listen to all the others, where all of the all of the se- uh, segments are there, what you see is very very interesting character development. And what they're doing is usually they're they're playing around with uh, the fem fatal angle was something that they built up um, in the Bailey sequence. Um, so you you had him. Um, usually with an interior conflict ab- about you know could he trust this woman could he let himself fall for her and because he wasn't a typical hard-boiled character but he would occasionally admit to his sensitivities and then realize that they got in the way in what he did I mean would, when, you, when you think about all that kind of it doesn't sound like character complexity in that description but in a radio show with fifteen-minute episodes, you know, it, it was quite remarkable what they did. Oh yeah, and
0: they, no, it's a, it's the it really. I mean, it only it was only a couple seasons that they did the five, you know, five days a week, fifteen minutes each day. Right. But they're mini movies. They're seventy-five-minute movies, and you're absolutely right. And you're this mixed direction in terms of you're right. They would resolve something. In that chapter, that single chapter, but it would lead to another reveal. And, well, you'll have to find out tomorrow why uh, this heiress that he's been following, uh, her father is uh, actually one of the kingpins behind the whole crime. Well, right. wait a minute. What's going on? Right. And it was always intriguing and made you want to hear more. And and also the acting was just you know ridiculously good again. Uh, but, no, it was – you're right. And, and it's, it's funny because this is a conversation I've been having this year in particular with a lot of uh, current writers – And that fear, because especially now with their image books, they are able to tell 30-issue, long, really long-form stories, sometimes more. I mean, coming off the Vertigo uh, 90s and early 2000s, like when Azzarello had 100 issues to do 100 Bullets and Jason Aaron had 80 issues at least to do Scalped. You know those kinds of things now it's great that these uh people are able to do these image books, but sometimes they're midway through their very long story that exceeds thirty issues and we're on the fourth or fifth uh trade and and While the story is interesting, it kind of loses steam and and it's that you know i've I've gotten modern writers to say, "Hey, you know we appreciate you investing in this book you're taking a chance on, but to really you know give it a good chance." You might need to wait four issues for the hook to come in or even eight issues. And I'm like, good luck, because that's a very crowded marketplace right now. And they understand, of course, each issue needs to count. But I I think you're right that there needs to be more immediate plot resolution in those chapters leading up to whatever left turn is coming Mm -hmm. to satisfy uh, us enough to know that. Things will begin and end as we build to this next, you know, story. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know where the disconnect is. And they, if it's a fear of, well, I, I don't want to put too, you know, too much story. I, I don't know. It's weird. But some guys do it right and women and some guys and women do it wrong.
1: No. For me, it's it's Difficult, or at least it, that's a choice. Well, it's it, difficult right. to talk in terms of right or, or wrong, and it's because that's yeah, you know, that's why I've been qualified. Know, that's <laughs> that's relative to the goals. taste, yeah, the creative yeah. goals, and your process. And to me, right or wrong is a matter of well, did I succeed in executing this the way I intended to, or the way true, the way I was asked to, you know. Um, but anyway, to, just but to close off the answer to the the, the question that you're uh, you're, that Pat uh, Zercher asked Twitter, and uh, you're. The, t- the tweet <laughs> I'm always loathe to answer questions about you know best or favorite or whatever because for fear of alienating people who are you know left out just you know because the conversation moves on and or, or they're omitted in some way because they don't, they don't fit the example but what I'm getting at is, is if I didn't make it clear already is that most of the people that I've worked with um, have excelled in one particular thing above above others. I mean, they've excelled at so many things, but there's always something that I could find that I really sparked to and could write to. Um, And most of the unpleasant experiences, and there haven't been very many, and I'm very lucky in that regard, um, have been with people who, shall we say, were given the assignment before they were ready for it, and in some cases... One in particular, uh, the artist did just one story in comics, and then you know was gone. So, really, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it was an issue of uh, of Cobra, of all things. I won't mention his name, but uh, poor fellow. <laughs> and there, yeah, there weren't that many issues of Cobra, so there you go. Well, 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 we had a revolving door on that one, anyway. Mm-hmm. Most of it was until Mike Nasser. Came along, who's um, I'm, I've forgotten. It. Is, it is Nasser his current name, or I think I think he was Mike Nasser, and now he's Mike. And I'm blanking on this so I'm So is it Netzler? Netzer is it... Nasser, Mike Netzer? Yeah,
0: Mike Netzer. Yeah, yeah, no, Mike. Mike follows me on on Twitter and uh, and Facebook, and I occasionally hear from him and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's living uh, in like uh, Israel uh, now, isn't until, he?
1: Yes, and until he came in as the regular pencil, we were going through you know on that book. So many different people, but uh, this one guy I'll never forget. I'll never forget passing Paul Levitz's office. He was, I think, he was the editor at that point, or was taking it over, or whatever. Uh, arguing with this this kid, saying you're not understanding my point of view. When basically what Paul was doing was pointing out that, well, you know, the figures were. Incompetent. The proportions were off. This story wasn't being told. I mean, there were a lot of fundamental problems with it, and this kid would just not take any kind of input. He says, "You're not seeing my point of view." <laughs> Paul just looked at him and said, "You don't have enough experience to have a." Point of view. <laughs> I understand. That's awesome. And How many? I remember that oh. being a, that being an object lesson for me. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, there's a time to listen and there's a time to express your opinion. Yeah. Well,
1: you know. well, and of course with editors of the old school who were very, very used to you know, editorial control because after all, they are responsible to management for the sales of the books. You know, It seems to make sense, sure. right? Um, those kinds of editors, you had to prove yourself to them before uh, the leash was let out. You know? And it was a sign that you had achieved something with not just Julie but editors like him they would not try to rewrite your copy, you know. And I went through, I went through a transitional period with Julie where, instead of him, for, instead of him rewriting it, I would do changes, or I'd come into the office and I'd suggest, well, you know, different things. And then it got to the point where he just wouldn't touch it at all. But I mean, young readers today have absolutely no idea uh, that up until. say the the 80s mid 80s and the whole uh, when the 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 direct only distribution system was very very clearly uh, going to be for all intents and purposes the only distribution system within you know 10 or 15 years which is indeed what happened yes until that point the whole idea and and of course all of the creator own stuff that followed uh, writers it was just automatically assumed that they would have to be rewritten to some extent by their editors. And nobody seemed to be bothered by this. And it's a tradition that goes back to a time, at least at DC, when there were no credits on the books. Sure. Um, so you had, to, you had to get to a point where they trusted you enough and the only way that you could do that was by showing professionalism and showing growth in their opinion. And then when it got difficult, of course, is when you reached that point where you realized um, that they were stuck in a certain way of, of thinking about things. And But the good ones were open to new ideas from younger people, and that was why you had to earn your trust. But when you got it, you know, uh, people like Danny O'Neill were, were able to do the things that, you know, that they did Um,
0: who were the more uh, open to new ideas editors
1: well certainly uh, people like Joe Orlando uh, Denny O'Neill himself as an editor seems like it yeah Archie Archie, Archie, there you go Len Wein certainly okay but they were the people who had themselves gone through that process. And the, the kind of I, – I guess the best example of what I'm talking about would actually be Dick Giordano, who was contemporaneous. You know, I'm talking about a period at D.C. Before, before I got there sure, uh, where this transition started. Uh, but you know, uh, if you look at the work of Dick Giordano as an editor uh, in the late 60s and you know, early 70s, <clears throat> excuse me, what you see is a, is a mix – of a lot of the the old pro writers like Joe Gill that he worked with at uh, Charl- Charlton. Charlton, right. yes. And the young writers that he had worked with at Charlton, uh, such as uh, Denny O'Neill and Steve Skates. Sure. Uh, and Julie, I don't want to, you know, himself was one of those people who, in time, and by in time, I mean over the course of a working relationship with, with several writers, was open to new ways of doing things. And, and, you know, at that point, DC was under a great deal of pressure uh, to be better competitive with Marvel because the tables had turned. Uh, DC, uh, Marvel was no longer uh, stuck being distributed by independent news. Limited to eight issues at one exactly, point. Exactly, exactly. Yep. And then once they were able to practically overnight double uh, their output they started to seriously breathe down uh, DC's neck. And so there was a great deal of pressure to, you know, hey, get them uh, young kids in here, them young whippersnappers, because they don't... <laughs> no, I mean, it's, they, none of them talk like that. But, you know, of course. Yeah, not. But I actually walked down the hall once, and I remember, you know, and this is why I sometimes wonder why, you know, people of my, what people of my generation must sound like to the, you know, the young kids coming up. <laughs> but I would walk, you know, I would walk down the hall... And Murray Boltonov would stick his head out and go, hey, Pasco, what do the kids say now for (laughs) hip? Outstanding. And I said something like, well, Murray, if you've already lettered it, just take some white out and take out the three little prongs on the E. (laughs) And you'll, (laughs) you'll get hip, Okay. Maybe production will have to tighten up the lettering a little bit, but, you know. That's awesome. That's, that's, well, that's, well that's, no, I learned not to, t- to talk like that because I you know, I discovered that, you know. Murray was many good things, but a person with a sense of humor about himself, he was not. But, you know, I love those uh, brave and
0: bolds, him and Haney, that uh, would do these like, you know. Yeah, I don't care. Batman is doing a story with Sergeant Rock. Tough. That's it. Well, but we don't care. Yeah, but you killed Ro- – you know, Sergeant Rock died at the end of World War II. I don't care. We're doing Sergeant Rock as a vet and he's a career sergeant guy and now he's a middle-aged uh, army guy and he's working on a case with Batman or Batman and Wildcat working together with no cosmic treadmill uh, to get Wildcat to Earth-1. Well, this you is... You know, that kind of this nonsense. is, And
1: this is the main reason why, I think. Um, I don't want to credit uh, just Denny uh, with it because I think other people were involved in the decision, but the whole Elseworlds branding that they had at DC for a while, I, I, I think, I genuinely think it came out of That same sentiment, which is that there were some very interesting stories that were created by utter disregard of continuity. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So let's create a formal framework uh, in which we can do those kinds of stories. Um, They did them back then without an Elseworlds branding simply because they didn't think it mattered. But ironically enough, Weisinger had enough of a sense of fans back in the days when Fans didn't even count uh, in terms of the numbers from their point of view with the imaginary stories in Superman. I mean, he—you y- know what I'm saying? I do. Go on. He knew that there was a value in creating this framework uh, in which they could, you know, do riffs on the continuity without, you know, disturbing what was the the core franchise. Uh, and they were mindful of that, of course, because you know the, the TV show was still running. So they, you know, they wanted to keep the real stories, although they were much more fantastic um, within the world that was familiar. In other words, it wasn't until after the television series had been around for a long time that they decided, all right, now we can make Clark Kent something else. You know, when and when Julie took over from Weising and all the other editors uh, took over the Superman books, they said, all right, he'll be on television or you know, all those other things that they did. But they couldn't play fast and loose with Superman, so he created the imaginary story. Now, why Murray, simultaneously working for the same company, was doing these things that flagrantly, you know, um, violated what we would call canon today, I don't know, but nobody cared. Um, but I have to say that even the ones that didn't violate continuity were a little wonky and tone-deaf. I mean, the answer to how, how what would a Batman-Plastic Man story be? The answer to that is nothing. There shouldn't be a Batman-Plastic Man story. Because um, you can't... How can you make that, that tone shift work? One of those two characters has to step out of character um, in order for the story to be uh, interesting organic. no you're you're right because well, I mean, you're, you're either putting Plastic Man into melodrama and film noir <laughs> or you're putting Batman into slapstick comedy
0: <laughs> true you know. but you know uh, Wade had that moment in uh, a great uh, Justice League story where their personas the hero and the secret identity personas were actually like split off and um, in Plastic Man's case Eel O'Brien, the the criminal, reemerged and kind of challenged Batman in a, in a in knowing that he was having these like feelings of going back to his criminal ways and before it was too late, you know, really like approached Bruce Wayne and said, "Hey, this is happening. We got to do something about this." And it was it, it was dr- drama. The slapstick was gone, but but yeah, it was extreme circumstances and it made. Uh, for a very you know interesting character moment between the two guys that you're right shouldn't normally work, or you have him stretching around, coiling around Batman, being silly in the middle of Batman trying to figure something out, and yeah, you know. But I mean that's the thing. So yeah, I agree. And well, again, it, see, was, it was a lone exception. That's a very but, you know but
1: our, singular moment. Our zeal, our mania for these created universes is real. <laughs> actually in a lot of ways it seems to me limits possibilities we're seeing characters that can't really be modernized simply because to be true to their core values from a branding perspective they can't be shoehorned into this created universe um and plastic man is a perfect example yes now i don't know like for example with the recent uh a DC Convergence stunt, which was yes. essentially designed to write a number of characters out of the continuity, I understand? In some ways, yes. I mean, like,
0: they've, they've you know, replaced the Classic Justice Society with this group of Earth 2 heroes that have the same names, right. but absolutely have a very much more modern... Uh, interpretation of their their backstories and are being essentially
1: rewritten. Now, I don't know if that's a a strategic decision because they believe that those characters are unexploitable in their current or most recent versions. Um, Whether that's in response to some sort of overarching uh, plan for the DCU that is, you know, where the bus is essentially being driven by by Warner Brothers, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, But that's an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about where you just discard an idea or just don't exploit it at all uh, simply because it doesn't fit into the DCU and I mean the idea of a even an alternative superhero line uh, being simultaneously published by DC I don't see that happening now I, I don't And I, I I agree with you. I assume that's because the big two, you know, have reasons to believe that there's no market for it. But I, you know, in
0: other words, well, the exception, the exception seems to be the um, uh, the milestone line is coming back, and it will be its own separate thing. Mm -hmm. And it's still so early in the in the uh, stages of planning and stuff. You know, no one's even talking yet about how to approach. The classic characters, and in fact, they will—they have the opportunity. I'm not sure how much Warner will be involved or not to uh, come up with new uh, milestone ideas as well. But yeah, that seems to be the lone exception. you're another uh, well, character example well, like that milestone
1: is milestone. Is isn't it being revived completely independently from Warner Brothers DC? That was my understanding. I could be wrong. Well, I think they're still in,
0: from a comics publishing standpoint. You know, DC will be at least. You know, carrying it in the same way that uh, DC carried Wildstorm when Jim and uh, DC made the deal for Wildstorm oh, and stuff. Oh, oh okay. Uh, so there's that. Um, and certainly Wildstorm characters on their own have been folded into the new DC. Uh, but but like a good example, like you said, about Plastic Man, like Shazam, they don't seem to know what to do with Captain Marvel. I hate calling him Shazam. <laughs> and I understand that it's purely from licensing purposes that, that this is why it's happened. So he's still Captain Marvel to me. Um, well, but yeah, I just I think without without that you know great lineage and everything, they, they just don't know what to do with them.
1: Well, that whole conundrum is another example of exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about, which is you know I, when when DC sued Fawcett over Captain Marvel, one of the defenses that didn't fly was that it was tonally so different from Superman that it was, I don't think they used the parody word, but the suggestion was, uh, because they didn't want any linkage, but it, the suggestion was it was whimsical, it was, it was lighter, and it wasn't a competitor to Superman, which was tonally so different. <laughs> so when you try to make Captain Marvel grim and gritty, you just get a redundancy with, with Superman. Yeah. And so, yeah. so what you have to do to make the stories different is you get very, very heavily involved in an intensively recomplicated backstory involving the mythology and you know, you get Black Adam and you get all of this stuff. And it really it, it, it really is kind of like um I, I, I'd love to come up with a perfect illustration and I can't off the top of my head of what what Marlon Brando called once hanging a pumpkin on a morning glory uh, <laughs> this, do, you, do you remember that quote? do you remember that? no but I, I, I get the metaphor I assume well, in terms uh, of it would snap the morning glory in Superman, after do it. When, when Superman had wrapped filming they sent Brando out to do interviews and he astonished everybody by actually doing them. Um, I think his agent may have put a gun to his head and said, they're paying you $3 million for four days' work. The least you can do is give them some press time, right? So he would give all of these interviews, and then very, very quickly, they said, no, no, no more interviews with Brando, because he was saying all of these bizarre things. And that's what he said about Superman? He said, well, that was his way of saying, we're going to be respectful to, to, to Superman. We were not going to hang a pumpkin on a morning light. And, he, and he, I, I should, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. It, it's not after it wrapped. It was while it was shooting. Okay. He was talking about that, that. Yeah, that's what it was. Because <laughs> the other one was he said, uh, how are you going to play Jorel? And he said, well, I've, I, I want to play it as a suitcase. Or, or maybe a green bagel. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm not yeah, – never mind. That was a horrible attempt. Um, but yeah, it, it's going to be a green bagel. Or a suitcase. And so we're going, oh, okay. Maybe we shouldn't... Maybe they shouldn't let Brando give <laughs> But anyway, that's, but to go back to the Captain Marvel thing, that's what... That's, that's, you know, I mean... William Goldman wrote a screenplay for Captain Marvel. Really? In the 90s. Yeah. Okay. That was a period piece. It was set, okay. it was set in 1953. And... I may have been alone in the opinion, but I thought it was just exquisite. Cool. He nailed the whimsy. And it, it, what it was was a brilliant screenwriter working on something that he really loved as a kid. And you could see that. And it was just it, 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 charming. And, was it a communist kind of storyline?
0: Was it a communist sort of storyline being in 53?
1: No, 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 no. Nothing political in the uh, Whatsoever, okay, and and of course, Golden very very wisely stayed away from trying to do something like Mister Mind, you know, in live, okay. in live action. Well, I'm sure that's you know might have been something somebody somebody might have suggested, you know. Let, Was, it a, Savannah? Was with, it a Savannah? Let's do with CGI. I never heard of a conversation. <laughs> well, you know, really, I mean, you, you'd end up with something that looked like the Garfield movie, not Garfield. Um, um, yeah, Garfield. The Garfield. It was Garfield, Garfield, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the, the, the orange cat.
0: Well, <laughs> you
1: know, I worked in an animation on something called Heathcliff, which was, and and Garfield was was sort of like Heathcliff, knocked off a little bit. I, you know, but much much funnier and more more successful, of
0: course. Well, yeah, I was going to say I don't know which came first, Heathcliff or Garfield, but go on. I think it was Heathcliff.
1: Okay. <laughs> but anyway, what I'm saying is, cartoon orange tabbies. They all run together in the mind. <laughs> but how many how many things have we started talking about me and no this but this is interesting well you know what i was going to say is and at just keep coming in and are never going to get an answer
0: well that's – so some no and we we we're, we're getting answers and we actually we're finding out other interesting things um, one thing i don't understand and i'm curious if you've if you have been watching any of the current uh, dc television um, because the Flash, I think, solved the Justice Society problem that DC Comics can't seem to do because their depiction of Earth Two is great, and it is this idealized, like in, in, a, in the same way that, that Jeff Johns had done in um, Infinite Crisis, if I remember my correct uh, crisis, crisis stories right. But that you know that it, it that Earth Two was this kind of cleaner Art Deco uh, society that survive without the grit that we got in in our world and in Earth One. And, you know, New York was still that beautiful Chrysler building kind of exciting design of the 30s and didn't have the Times Square kind of grim grit that got by the 70s. I I know what you're responding to.
1: For me, the problems I have with those shows um, are all – I mean, the the things you're responding to are all overridden by the fact – that for me, it, it all looks like it actually should be called Teen Titans. Uh, I mean, They are young. They are young. I understand. And I mean, that's not the issue in and of itself. It's just if you want to make the characters younger, well, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's the CW fantasy elements that aren't fantasy elements. What I'm saying is who working... For a police department can afford a car like that you know what I understand you know, I understand. Or, or those kinds of clothes or and and yes, yes, that's the standard c w or actually it started on Fox right you know with uh, beverly Hill's nine oh two one o and all that absolutely yes um and that's
0: what a young network needs to do i'm sure a b c did similar things in the sixties
1: well, so so we have superheroes who are young, that's fine. I mean, th- there's a long tradition of that, of course. You know, Peter Parker was still in high school, but he was Spider-Man. Sure. Sure. And that, I'm sure had a great deal to do with his appeal. Because prior to that, you know, people that age, if they were superheroes, you know, super boy, you know, right? And, or Robin or if they were sidekicks, right. you know. Right. But um so we that's not the issue. It, it, it's just that... Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it, it's a very old-school kind of a thought. But there used to be a saying, for an audience... And it's clearly not true in this... I mean, anymore. But for an audience to really buy in, you can get away with an unfamiliar uh, character in a familiar environment or a familiar character in an unfamiliar environment. And that was... Uh, the prevailing theory that was tested with the simultaneous launch of two separate science fiction uh, comic book series, Mystery and Space... Uh, I'm sorry, Space Ranger and Adam Strange. Okay. Um, Space Ranger was perceived as uh, a familiar character in an unfamiliar environment. But more in terms of tropes of the, of the character. And Adam Strange was – well, no, I'm sorry. I'm getting that wrong because – hmm. I'm trying to remember the story that I was told by Julie Schwartz. Uh, there must have been – maybe there was another series. I'm confusing it with, with – Because, with, yeah, I know Adam Strange's backstory and everything. Adam and Strange that, you know. was the familiar person in the unfamiliar environment. Right. Okay. Uh, um, I, I think maybe Martian Manhunter, but it wasn't that wasn't launched at around the same time. But Martian Manhunter may have been the other example, which is a very familiar example, of a very familiar world, uh, you know, with an alien creature coming into it. But, true, but true. you can't have both. And there was another series that was cited as a failure, and maybe, maybe that was where Space Ranger entered into the equation, where it was an unfamiliar kind of character because he was, uh, you know, a policeman in, in a totally... Uh, removed world a uh, world removed from Mars I, I don't know but Space Ranger was, was that character
0: or yeah, was uh, might, might have
1: been so my, my point is my, my point is it's an instinctual reaction that I have and I, again I'm, I'm speaking not even as a writer here just as an audience member and it's purely a matter of my taste because obviously these shows are hugely successful um, the when the fantasy spills over into the elements of the show that are in my opinion reality based it i, I start to drop out of it because I, I, I can't find relatable hooks huh you know okay uh, but again as i say that's a purely personal reaction.
0: oh sure no and i mean honestly i do think flash does a good job of blending the young characters with like the the older adults are not just uh you know window dressing they have things to do jesse martin is really, really good on The Flash mm-hmm. and it's an extension of his Law & Order character and it's kind of fun seeing that kind of cop in this, you know, and dealing with like this weird, weird fantasy mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and God, Tom uh, Kavanaugh, who uh, played uh, uh, Professor Wells and continues to right. and, was, and was the reverse Flash in season one God, he was so I mean, what a complex character and going from Nurturing mentor to No, this is actually Moriarty mm-hmm. You know, your greatest villain and everything manipula- Manipulating you And it was great And you know, I gotta say, Grant uh, And I never remember how to say his last name But the the guy who plays Flash He's really grown on me And despite being as young as he is Is a very capable actor mm-hmm. And you know, the complexities of Barry the, the, new, the new backstory I think that Jeff gave Barry Allen, who really was just another mm-hmm. Blonde, white guy who had chemicals spilled on him, and he started running. But you know, you know all the stuff that that Jeff invented in uh, Flash Rebirth with uh, his mom, uh, the death of his mother, and Professor Zoom being behind it, mm-hmm. and and just that whole thing. It it plays well on TV, and and I and I think it's great. And what they're doing with the Justice Society in this second season, they introduce Jay Garrick right away, and. It's, I you know it's Jay Garrick, it's Jay Garrick with the Mercury hat and the old outfit and everything. And again, he comes from this Earth Two that is just this more Art Deco Earth Two that wasn't, like I said, wasn't just didn't go down the gritty, you know, decades that that our real world did. Like, and it's just a more idealized
1: kind of beautiful, monorail, you know, perfect uh, utopian society. Well, John, one of the things that I always <clears throat> enjoy about talking with you is that your enthusiasms are so infectious that you, you tend to open my closed mind. <laughs> <Yeah. I> mean, <laughs> well, in the I same had, way, man. I started getting caught up with Flash on Netflix, and... Oh, I feel bad now. If I'm spoiling, I apologize so for if, if I'm spoiling, I apologize. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Not at all. Um, so now I feel like well you've, you've intrigued me especially you know telling me that I've got you know, Jay Garrick to look oh. forward to oh
0: yeah you know honestly the first half of the first season of Flash I thought was really tough to get through mm. and a friend of mine they had their mid-season finale and that's where I gave up on it I understand and that's why a friend of mine is like no man you gotta watch a couple of the episodes leading up to the mid-season finale because it's gotten better and I'm like, okay. And I went. I'm like, holy shit, they're right. And if you want a great example of that, Mark Hamill reprising the Trickster, they were they were very clever in the way they incorporated stuff from the Bilson DeMeo, DeMeo '90s Flash Show into the new show. And he's the same character, mm. and 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 really has uh, has a Joker aspect to the Trickster that works, and it's a lot of fun. Mm. And that was a really so yeah, I watched that in particular. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm not kidding, man. No, this – what they've introduced uh, in Earth 2, in season two, and I, like I said, I'm sorry that I spoiled it for you. It's great. And I, and I would say get, give the second half because even the, the series – the season one finale mm-hmm. resolves a lot. And God, there are so many great emotional moments there that it, it's – yeah, it's a good show. And I'll admit I, I like Arrow. I don't like Arrow as much as I like Flash. And I and I but I do like Arrow and I keep liking Arrow more and more Hmm. Um, because Arrow, you know, it's funny how it followed that uh, original, I guess, idea back in the 40s of creating Green Arrow in terms of it being Batman with Arrows. And they get to do a lot with Arrow that they likely would do with a Batman TV series. And it works and it is different. And also, um, of of course,
1: they're not doing anything with the quiver as utility belt. Yeah. You know,
0: we're not, no, although oh, there's a boxing been a, glove arrow. <laughs> ah, but there has been a boxing glove arrow, and that's what I mean. Me? It's, are you kidding? Well, me? again, the great. Yeah, but this is the thing, Marty. Just like your guys' generation of of writers and and uh, these these guys doing the TV stuff, they grew up on the good stuff and are able to now push that through. And and however they're able to do it, and I've I've interviewed uh, Mark Guggenheim, the showrunner of Arrow, about it. I just heard Andrew Kreisberg. Uh, one of the runners on Flash right. talk about this. Uh, at least now there's an environment at the at the network and at uh, you know Warner's in general and right. and CW that they are listening to the comic book guys and 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 the fans and saying no, it's got to be this way and it's good. They put King Shark in a, in a quick moment in Flash, mm. and it was like oh my god, and it totally worked. Or God, what they've mm. been able to do with Gorilla Grodd. I mean, it's just amazing. What they're hey, they're now
1: capable of doing, I, honestly, it's well, it's really amazing. You, it's very, very cool. You have described a very, very different environment than yes uh, than used to exist, obviously. Uh, and I think if you can identify any of these fan favorite elements, the, the kinds of things you're referring to as it's got to be this way, if you can identify any of those as a unique selling proposition for the brand then it's always better to say, instead of an knee jerk reaction, we can't do this. It'll look silly. Uh, it's unworkable. It doesn't make any sense. It's better to say, how can we make this work? It's called adaptation. And what it sounds like you're saying is the product demonstrates a uh, an environment that is more receptive to adaptation than merely cherry-picking from among the continuity the things that a preconceived notion says will look good or are yes. rejected because they won't yeah
0: uh, no it's it yeah they seem to have that um clout to to push that stuff through and in fact kreisberg said in flash he's like look we acted like we're probably going to get 13 episodes in and out let's do the flash show that at least fans will appreciate as a cult show of oh god at least they were able to get all that stuff out there and do a good job with with those ideas And that's why they just kind of went with it. And luckily, Flash is just such a... I mean, the only thing about Arrow is it is kind of a a darker and more noir show. So it's a little more depressing in the same sense that Gotham, I think, suffers from. Mm -hmm. Whereas Supergirl and The Flash are such positive and optimistic shows that I really think they hit the ground running with this kind of brightness that people really appreciate. And the same goes for the Marvel movies compared to the DC movies. There's always a bit more humor, it seems... And and a lighter tone to the Marvel films mm-hmm. than than uh, than the DC stuff. Well, I actually haven't heard you talk much about the Marvel uh, movie product and everything. What's what are your thoughts on those?
1: Well, my, my <laughs> I I tend to sit through superhero stuff if I feel I need to. Uh, it's more a matter of research, or I mean, it's just it's not quite honestly a form of entertainment that I would actively seek out myself, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Is it like a hardware store? Is it like working in a hardware store and suddenly like, hey, here's a whole, whole pile full of nails. Well, it. well, it's always been like that. Uh, okay. Uh, but <laughs> there wasn't quite so much of it, you know, and it, yeah. it gets to a point where you just, you have to be a little, a little more selective. Um, I, I'm i closed-minded about a lot of things. I, I, you know, I am the kind of person who, Whose mind shuts down after, you know, not feeling engaged for more than 10 minutes, which is not to say I have a short attention span. I just get impatient very quickly. And quite frankly, that's perhaps one of the reasons why I never really got into Star Wars, to back to something we were talking about before. Okay. Which is that, well, you have to understand, I wasn't a kid when the first Star Wars movie came out. I was already a young, a young adult and working professional. And so, you know, a friend of mine wanted to see this. You know, I had nothing to do do one afternoon, and I said, all right, fine. But I had already, you know, read a great deal about it in in the showbiz trade papers, and in in particular, uh, AFI uh, had had a, a magazine, and they did an extensive interview with George Lucas in which he told the story of how, uh, Star Wars was essentially his response to not being able to convince Ned Tannen of Universal to let him do a Flash Gordon feature. So basically, he decided we'll do Flash Gordon without Flash Gordon, Fantastic. A- and he was flat out candid about that. Now, that may have colored my perception because when I went in after the first 10 minutes of those, you know, unusual special effects, state of the art spectacular like nothing you'd ever seen before, sure, I'm sort of like. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, what else? I mean, I get it. This is Flash Gordon tricked up with mysticism and really good special effects. Show me something. Sure. new. And I never, f- and I never felt I got something new. And I literally did fall asleep on the second one. And the- wow! An on Empire. That's insane. That's fantastic. Well, you know, Irvin Kershner <laughs> setting up these shots. It's sad. I mean, really is. I mean, you know, Mark Hamill's face was so badly messed up at that well yeah because he had the accent sure, and everything. Right.
0: that's but but marty you do know that like literally empire is like i guess the fan favorite of of the three of the original three there's that new hope i mean there's that new hope contingent well of course the first movie is the best and it's like, yeah but you know so much happens in empire and you that, know whatever you and you see
1: i'm not proselytizing for or against anything i'm just talking about personal taste Sure, man. But, no, no, not, it's interesting. When, it's I, when I am so alone <laughs> in my opinion on, on things such as I am here, it, it's fascinating to me. And I've I been thinking a lot about the idea of Star Wars not just as an American phenomenon, but as a global one. And, Absolutely. And, and certainly its reach has had a lot of time because, you know, we're looking at more than almost 40 years. Almost 40 years? Yeah. yeah right. 38 years? Uh-huh. So it's had a lot of time to have what made Spider-Man so successful as a film, which is, I mean, to make the next one as successful, is that multi-generational uh, yes. ident- identification with it. Yes. But what it seems to me is the most interesting thing that I'm, I'm seeing in all of this the discussion about it is the suggestion that there have been a succession of younger generations – Whose lives have been without any kind of uh, what's the best way to put this? Because I, I'm not a religioso. I'm not. I mean, I'm not. I'm not speaking critically here, but it seems that there have been a number of generations that have had a kind of a spiritual emptiness in their lives and in their upbringing. Understood. Whether, sure. whether or not. Uh, a Judeo Christian or Muslim or any other god has been part of their religious uh, training, and that the mysticism of Star Wars sort of fills a void. And I'm wondering why that would be, and is the answer in uh, history and sociology, or is the answer in the unique combination? Of elements, the the mashup of genre tropes, if you will, Mm -hmm. that Star Wars is. I don't really know, Um, but what I'm getting at is the people of my generation who are really into it still are people who were fans then. Yes. And the people who were not fans per se, but might have. Might have read science fiction, and in point of fact, as I recall, a lot of hardcore science fiction fans at the time wouldn't have ne- wouldn't necessarily respond, uh, didn't necessarily respond to it or get hooked by it. And of course, the biggest criticism of it from a lot of people I knew in the science fiction community when it first came out is it's not, in fact, science fiction. It's it's right. It's science fantasy. It's a completely yes. genre. Yes. And that may also account for some of my, I don't want to say disdain, but. Uninterest, lack of interest certainly uh, you know my taste in science fiction runs to uh, new wave stuff and th- the subsequent stuff it's influenced you know uh, uh, and Ellison, Silverberg, Wolf, Sheckley you know those people understood um, and that may have colored it as well but yet, yet, you know, yet I really really got into Star Trek which is a whole different thing I mean as a kid but as a kid Right. But I maintained that interest um, enough to be you know, really eager to tackle it creatively when the opportunity arose. And I think and this brings me back <laughs> to that original point about Star point. Trek. Why don't it is malleable. It, it is fungible. That world can be treated in a variety of different ways. Um, and it was actually very successful, or much more so than our dramatic series. Uh, I'm talking about the original series. In doing comedy episodes, um, I mean, you know, Trouble with Tribbles is a is a big favorite. Oh yeah. And what I think that may have done is led uh, the network and the studio in Roddenberry's absence. To say, okay, this is a malleable thing. Um, the seriousness of the second season wasn't working terribly well. well. Let's make it a little loopier. In in terms of next generation or, no, or the original series? I'm talking about go Fred Friday. Okay. Fred Fre- ah, so back to Fre- yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Oh, yes. In that last season. So what they're saying is, well, let's, let's go. Let's make it a little goofy. Um... Well, you know, we'll still play it more or less straight, but we can put our tongue in our cheek a little bit. You know, the way. Like Spock's brain. Well, no, I'm the way, you know, Wild Wild West did it. Hey, let's get that guy Freiburger. OK. Now, that's what that was all about. All that.
0: I see. Uh, OK. So is that confirmed? Because because I know
1: like like is that confirmed or is that a theory on your part? Um, it's, it, it is It's a theory. Uh, it's informed only by having had a very brief conversation with Fred Freiberger once. Freiburger was the also, and his reputation for being able to take something that is falling apart and putting it back together again, is well-established. Freiburger was the producer on the second season of the Superboy series that was done in Florida.
0: Oh, wow, because I had another one in mind. Go on, and then I'll tell you the one I was thinking of, oh, another series.
1: Please, because, uh, yeah, talk about Superboy. And... I think that was yet another gig of mine that got scuttled by the writer's skill strike. Oh man! Because well, you know, did you, you know? Did you not? Because I know a lot of guys did work for it. You know, Carrie Bates was one of the story editors in this in the second right. season. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. That's yeah, the great so, thing about so, the Superboy show. Yeah. So, yeah. so Fred and I, you know, talked, for, chatted for about half an hour, um, and he liked the fact that I knew both the story editors. The other one was uh, Mark Jones, okay. whom I had worked with at Ruby Spears and Animation. So it was almost like It would be this done deal Okay we'll have you in next week I'll pitch some stuff And it was like you know There was no paper But it was like This is an assignment You know And that that didn't happen But what he did do Was just In very broad strokes Outline what some of the concerns were On the part of uh, Viacom The syndicators And on the part of D.C. Uh, about the first season. Of Superboy. Yeah. And and if I'm, you know, check me on this. Wasn't the second season the one where they were starting to make more of an effort to bring in uh, costume, other costume characters from this? Absolutely. Yeah. More more of the costume villains and stuff, certainly. Oh, no, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick Sandspitalik. Uh, uh, wasn't there a Pizarro, I believe? Wasn't there? I believe. Yeah.
0: Well, and also, didn't? wasn't it during the second season that we got the whole future Superboy, Ron Eli kind
1: of mm-hmm. stuff going on? I, that might be. I was wasn't long. following it that carefully. I mean, again, it was one of those things where I had been familiar with it from the first season, wasn't all that impressed by what I saw. I had an opportunity to write something, and then it, it fell apart because of the strike, I think, or there was some other reason. I, I'm not quite sure what it was. Uh, or rather, I'm not sure I remember correctly what it was, but um, it didn't happen, so I I got out of the habit of watching the show. Um, And I do remember seeing, oh, Michael Pollard, that's that's kind of interesting. Uh, They they gave him the costume from the comics. Ooh, that don't look too good in live action, you know. But But to get back to my point was, Freiberger, although he was known as a writer, that's how he started out, Right. Uh he wrote the screenplay for example for the beast from twenty thousand fathoms. Is that Oh wow. The 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 first solo Harryhausen picture based on the yeah. Bradbury story. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh he, that's awesome. He did that screenplay. He, um and before the
0: Superboy stuff, he came in to fix uh Space nineteen ninety nine and unfortunately failed as well with that. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh uh I T V and um and uh, Anderson, Jerry Anderson, yeah, they brought Freiburg in because they're like, well, he's a Star Trek guy, so he kind of understands the you know the basics of what we're working with here. Mm. And and yeah, no, it was you know the first the first season is really the great season for Space nineteen ninety nine, if you could call it great. But you know, it's interesting, Marty, because the aesthetic, the look of that show and the design of that show really does match the sci fi paperbacks of the day. Well, I mean, it, really, I'm I I'm shocked at how much I enjoyed rewatching. I mean, it's slow. I
1: remember looking. It's, I remember looking at one episode of Space nineteen ninety nine, and my reaction was, "Oh my god!" And apparently, I was hardly alone in that. Uh, real fast story. Uh, I wrote a I co-wrote an episode of the Twilight Zone that, uh, that starred Martin Landau. Okay, awesome. <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. Oh was it, was it tough to work uh, with it? no 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 it's just okay. it was just it was let us say it was a script that required a certain delicate handling because of the premise. And it you know, it wasn't a great piece of writing. But we had a director, uh Gerd Oswald, um a very lovely man, but um shall we call him a failed German expressionist? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he, he started out in the German film industry, but he was like a camera operator, and he came over to this country. And his big claim to fame is that he directed uh, a, a film noir that is well that is well thought of called uh, A Kiss Before Dying. Sure. And he, okay, he did yeah. he did a lot of episodes of The Outer Limits and so on. Well. Okay. Word had a lot of very interesting, innovative ideas that didn't really have much to do with the story. I mean, I mean this mania for hi-hat shots. You know what a hi-hat is? No, time. Uh, uh, back in the day before everything was digitized, um, the hi-hat was a camera stand that allowed you to get the camera down as close to the ground as possible, the floor as possible, to get an up-angle shot. Okay, and, okay. You know, you, you, if you've heard the famous story about Citizen Kane, where Orson Welles was frustrated about not being able to get a certain angle, mm-hmm. that he took a pickaxe off the wall and started to dig a trench in the stage yes. floor so he could, right. Well, So he totally could get the shot, right. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the hi-hat was essentially, as I, as I understand it, developed uh, right. for that purpose. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. Well, so Martin Landau is being shot from this angle, and... <laughs> The, the picture is 25 minutes of Gerd Oswald looking up Martin Landau's nose. I was yeah. going to say, exactly. We get a great shot of the nasal passages of right. Martin Landau. Right. All right. And besides, and to make him look, because it, it's about, it, it's about, a, 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 we, we hinted, it's an inbred community, right? Because it's an, an isolated skin. one. So the one battle that Gerd won, he he wanted to do all kinds of things to make them look unusual. At one point, he wanted to put stocking caps uh, stockings, literally nylon stockings over their faces as, as and the idea was that this was the way they went about. this was their you know the the, the equivalent i guess of um the 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 specific kinds of undergarments that mormons uh, traditional mormons wear okay yes yes in other words, yes. that was his idea of externalizing the culty aspect of the group right okay, well the one okay. one argument that he won was that everybody wore these. Uh, butterscotch colored wigs. <laughs> so the entire, all the time, but this is his way of showing you know.
0: It's a I, so poor,
1: poor Marty Landau is wearing this thing that looks you know, looks like DuPont was involved and human beings never had anything to do with it. <laughs> it, it replaces his own toupee and he's so wonderfully professional. So we have the rap party. And I walk up to him and I introduce myself and I say I'm one of the co-authors of The Beacon. I'm really really very sorry about that. And he just chuckled. And and I just I was, you know, stammering, making a fool of myself apologizing for how bad the script was, and he just looked at me and said, "Relax. You never wrote for Space 1999." <laughs> He had this look on his face, like, you know, it was the most horrible experience of his life. I suspect that that was probably because he was having some trouble with Barbara Bain at the time. But,
0: um, yeah, it's a it's a very like the whole backstory of the production of Space nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it is crazy, and yeah, they were not they were always at odds with Jerry Anderson, both both he and Barbara Bain. So I don't know where their their, their marriage
1: was. Yeah, well, you know, actors are a little bit. Wary about people with that kind of background. I mean, you know, people were reluctant to work with George Powell if they were major stars. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Marlon Brando, uh, you, know, you know, famously uh, disparaged his director on the, the version of uh, Island of Dr. Moreau that he did. Oh, yeah, yes. Frankenheimer. Yes. Uh, oh, Frankenheimer was a
0: great director. Well, Franken- but that thing got away from, uh, that movie got away from them all.
1: Frankenheimer was replaced, wasn't he? Oh, you're right. And I forget who replaced him. Frank, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Frank Oz, and this is the point. Wow, really? It was Throughout Frank Oz? The production, Brando refused to address him as Frank or anything else except Miss Piggy.
0: Oh, that's hilarious.
1: So what I'm saying uh, is there's a long showbiz tradition of (laughs) actors not wanting to be directed by puppeteers. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, we're going to stop there and we're going to probably start with that same anecdote with uh, part two. Because that goes into another long section of uh, of uh, Marty's observations, and I, you know it's tough to kind of find an endpoint because you you hear how Marty's uh, mind works, and and he you know keeps apologizing, but all he does is you know talks about very interesting things, and uh, it's a pleasure to do that. So uh, we'll continue the conversation in just a couple of days, but uh, wanted to uh, get this to you uh, in time for Christmas, just like Santa. And uh, it's, you know, my way of saying thanks. Thanks a lot for listening uh, this last year and uh, beyond. Uh, You know, for those of you who have been with me all these 10 years, thank you very much. And thanks for sharing the word uh, to your friends that you like Word Balloon and uh, you think they might like it as well. And uh, thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your uh, financial support through Patreon. Uh, But I'll uh, give you the full commercial spiel on the next episode. But this one's a freebie because it is the holidays. So... Uh, even if you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you are with family at this time of year, and have a chance to tell the people that you love that you do love them, and they get to be with you as well. So, and I hope that uh, Word Balloon is uh, part of your uh, traveling uh, background as you're as you're going to see your loved ones. So, uh, have a great uh, vacation time because a lot of people take downtime at this time of year, whether they're you know observing a holiday or not, and uh, enjoy yourselves, but be safe. And don't worry, more great Word Balloon product to come before uh, we wrap up 2015. So until next time, thanks for listening. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.